Hi, I'm Jay Donsinghani, founder and editor of All Over Cricket and host of the All Over Cricket podcast. For episode two, I'm joined by Michel St. Patrick Hewitt, co-founder and host of the Caribbean Cricket podcast. You can follow his podcast on Twitter at Carib Cricket, that's C-A-R-I-B, Cricket. Mash and I talk about the Caribbean diaspora's relationship to the sport, systemic issues in West Indian cricket, the Bangladesh tour, and the future prospects of their men's team. Do keep an eye out for bonus content that we'll upload to our YouTube channel where we discuss what stifled the growth of the women's game in the Caribbean. Mash, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are things with you? Absolute pleasure to be on. Looking forward to chatting all things West Indies cricket. And ex- like, like I say, excited to see where you're going to go with your platform. Super excited for you um, and wishing you all the best with it, man. Yeah, thank you so much, man. You know, like we were talking about off camera or off mic, I started to notice you guys around April or May last year when most people started to notice you around the uh, time of the West Indian tour of England. That shout out you got on Sky Sports and, you know, all the, all the work you do. So once again, you know, I, I feel like I'm just repeating myself here, but yeah, great to have you on the show. And why, why don't you just start off by telling us what made you start the Caribbean Cricket Podcast, as well as the diaspora's relationship to West Indian cricket? I guess I, I always tell a variation of this story and probably tweak details every time I, every time I retell it, because things kind of change when you look back over time. But in essence, if I start... P- from the personal perspective, I was born in Jamaica and came over to the UK when I was um, three years old. And I and re- the reason I start there is because as part of the Caribbean diaspora that then grows up outside of the Caribbean. Um, so and primarily I'm talking the States and I'm talking the UK here. Obviously, there's other places, but they're the top two areas when you're t- and Canada, obviously, North America. Um, they're the top two areas when we're talking about the, the diaspora. And for people within my age bracket, I'm going to call that the 35 to 44 age bracket. <laughs> um, <laughs> for, people within, for people within my age bracket, West Indies cricket is, I want to say, was an oral tradition. Now, what I mean by that is that it's passed through from generation to generation. And my father had, had done his role. As a young kid growing up, it was very much, we watched the West Indies, the West Indies are world beaters. It, they, they almost instill a sense of Caribbean pride in how well they, in how well they do in the, in the, in the, on the cricket field and, and how they amplify and exemplify the region. So as a young person growing up, that was kind of just instilled into me. And I think for people who listen to this episode who, who are of West Indian extracts, I'm fairly certain that will resonate with them. Now, as I entered my, uh, let's say, 10, 11, 12 years old onwards, West Indies started to suck. And pretty much from the age of 12 to now, I've only seen West Indies be good very, very intermittently. Um, and largely speaking, the last 20 odd years, if not more, 25 plus years, you could even argue of West Indies cricket has been one of perpetual decline. And for my generation, generation growing up that's been new to 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 grow up within west indies cricket and not have it associated with them being world beaters and with that has seen almost like a decline in the fan base 
But when I say a decline, I don't literally mean nobody watches them anymore. I more mean people don't crow about it as much as they used to. And that's understandable. If you you take any sport, take any franchise, take any team, if your team is no longer a winning team, generally speaking, nobody wants to talk about that side. But what what myself and uh, the co-host of the podcast, Santoki, um, when, when we got together to discuss setting up the Caribbean Cricket Podcast, it was very much about trying to connect the divide. So recognizing that we were part of a generation that had still had it instilled into us that you support the West Indies and your diehard fans and looking at the generation underneath who we couldn't see a new generation coming certainly within the diaspora market almost like who are the West Indies never mind whether you should support them just who are they um so we wanted to try and bridge that gap but at the same time we wanted to try and build up the love again or and see a reason to support them again and no when you talk about the West Indies you don't we don't need to go on and on about the teams of the 70s 80s early 90s yeah we know the names we know all the people so I won't bore anybody with that but we almost wanted to in creating uh, the platform help people understand this and there is a new generation of players who within their own right are worth following are they going to be like Viv Richards no but are there some good players within this cohort this current generational cohort, yes, they are, and they're worthy of our support. And just trying to create a network or a medium or a media initiative that just brings people together again uh, to famously rally rally around the West Indies. And we just thought at the time there was a gap in the market for it. Um, because like I say, when you think West Indies, people will tell you about everybody from the 70s, 80s and 90s before they tell you about Jason Holder, for example. And J- Jason Holder is like a world beater and is well renowned in, in cricket, but people would still tell you about Viv Richards before they talk about Jason Holder, if, if, if that makes any sense. So that's a long answer, but that's effectively what it was about. Yeah, no, I definitely see where you're coming from. You hear it all the time on TV broadcasts as well, like you said, talking about the yesteryears, the 80s, the early 90s, the late 70s that sort of period. And yes, you know, I I hear what you're saying. The West Indies, at least on the field, ever since you were around 12 years old, they've really struggled. But at the same time, and I I feel like, you know, you've talked about this on the podcast as well, and I've seen a few tweets about this as well. Every now and then, at least for non-West Indian fans, the question always pops up, like, is this the West Indian resurgence? Like after what Shea Hope and and uh, Craig Brathwaite did in, uh, in 2017, yeah. there was this whole thing like, are the West Indies back? So what goes through your mind when, when people start to think about a potential West Indies renaissance? <laughs> um, okay, let me, I'm trying to pick my words carefully. <laughs> um, in my lifetime, the West Indies are never going to be back. <laughs> But but let me let me clarify what I mean by that. So we're never going to be world beaters again. Not in my lifetime, anyways. Uh, um, I think the gap between the financial gap, I should say, um, means that even if West Indies happen to luck upon a cohort of eleven to fifteen players that were as good as those in the eighties, I just don't believe that 
talent, I mean, New Zealand would beg to differ, but I just don't believe that talent alone and the way that the current cricket calendar is set up, that you'd ever see anything like what the West Indies did again. I just don't see it. So I prefer to look at a West Indian resurgence in the context of what does cricket really mean in 2021? And what that means to me is a packed calendar full of 2020 cricket, um, test cricket where home teams basically win all the time and away teams really, really struggle uh, to win in the series. Obviously, India winning in Australia, notwithstanding. But those things are seen almost like a surprise rather than par for the course. So the idea of a world-beating team, not convinced. But the idea of a team that can bat above its station and cause some upsets from time to time, I can see us doing that. Um I don't know if it'll be in the near future, but I can just, I can see us reaching that level. So New Zealand for me should always be the the template for, for where West Indies should be aiming for, which is essentially from a small area of the world um, with not that big of a um, market of players to choose from, but punching above their weight consistently um, if coached properly and given the resources that they can be given, given the financial disparity. And that's not, I don't want anyone to listen to that and think, oh, you're really talking the team down. I, I, I don't see it like that. I more just see it as essentially the, the market realities of present day cricket. And to me, if we ever got to that level where we're punching above our weight consistently, I, th- I think that is, I genuinely think that would be huge progress um, for, for, for a modern day West Indian side. It's interesting you raised the point of New Zealand and the way the sport is run over there. And maybe this is an interesting time to to ask this question, given all the election drama. But it seems, at least from us on the outside, that there have been a lot of changes with the two years that, that Ricky Skerritt has been in power. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah. So, um, again... For everyone jumping on 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 Jay's platform, I encourage you all after this go and read about what's been happening in Cricket West Indies and read about Skerritt's um, what was in 2019 a 10 point cricket first platform to kind of revitalise the region and cricket. Now, first things first, I think that the, the the 10 point plan that Ricky Skerritt and his vice president um, Kishore, Dr. Kishore Shallow, had has been affected by COVID. But first things first, the number one thing that they have achieved, and it seems weird to say that this is number one, but it has to be, is we haven't seen the relationship between the players in the region and the administrators has not been this good since, well, I couldn't even tell you, actually. I couldn't, in the whole time that I've been supporting the West Indies, I couldn't tell you the last time it was this good. And by good, I mean where players aren't coming out in the press and bad mouth in the administration, where presidents or people in the administration aren't using their platform to denounce players and call them mercenaries and try and blackball them out out of cricket, deliberately not select them to, to, to be in the maroon. And that can only be good. Because at the end of the day, and we, we had scary on our podcast about a month ago, cricket cannot move forward. And Ricky and I went back and forth on this and Ricky was in agreement in fairness, but cricket cannot move forward in a region like the Caribbean if it's not fixed off the field. If you are a shambles off the field in administration, no matter what talent you have at your disposal, you are going to use it poorly. And I think Skerritt's mandate since 2019 was first and foremost about let's fix the bridges. 
between the players and the administrators so that every single player is buying into West Indies cricket. And I think this is this for those who want to know a bit more, this is probably exemplified best through Kyron Pollard. Up until 2019, Kyron Pollard effectively was no longer being picked in the ODI team. He was being picked in 2020s, but even if I try and see it from the administrator's point of view in terms of the people preceding Ricky Skerritt, it seemed like Pollard would pick and choose when he wanted to be available, as well as administrators not wanting to pick him as well. Kyron Pollard is now the captain of the white ball teams in West Indies, both ODIs and T20s. And more importantly than that, he is he is now not committed himself to 2020 cricket above West Indies selection. Now, some people are going to say, but what about Bangladesh? A lot of players pulled out of the Bangladesh tour, so I won't go into that. But I mean things like him going to PSL and only agreeing to play X number of games and then coming back to play whatever tour or whatever series West Indies have. The old Kyron Pollard would play the whole of that 2020 tournament and just say he's not playing for the West Indies. So things like that are important. So that's what's happened in terms of the players. And then there's been key off-the-field developments. But effectively what, what Skerritt commissioned when he came to power was he said, we need to do a series of reviews. So I'm talking about there was a selection task force review. So And that was about independent reviews which looked at what is going wrong in West Indies cricket. So things like how can a president have influence on who is and isn't getting selected into a West Indian team. That makes no sense whatsoever. If you have a selection body, they should be independent to, to cricket West Indies. So they had a review and have implemented that. They've had a governance review, which has looked at basically and said and highlighted that there's far too many directors in cricket West Indies. Uh, there's too many hands in the pie, not all looking forward in West Indies cricket. Look out for how that gets implemented because that's that's going to be difficult to get through because there'll be certain countries and certain islands that won't want to reform how cricket is run in the Caribbean. Don't want to get too political about that one just yet. Um, they've had changes in terms of implementing a proper scouting network. Now, this sounds crazy what I'm about to say because things that you would take for granted in an England, in an Australia, in, a, in an India, it's only now that we've realised we need to have dedicated data analysts. We need to have dedicated regional scouts whose job is purely to go around the region and look at how players are doing. And people listen to this and go, what do you mean? What? You've only just realised you need that. But that's what I'm saying. You can't, unless you structure your cricket properly, too much of our cricket was things like somebody in this region happening to suggest a player just because, as opposed to it being based on specific data analysis. So I'm just going to pick some of those things as examples because there's loads to go on. But in the first two years, that's just some of the examples of things that have been changing off the field. And to me, it's no surprise that it's had an impact on the field. It's interesting you say that. And I hate to bring you back to the 80s again. Mm-hmm. But you know, just to further illustrate your point, Back in the heyday of West Indian cricket, obviously you didn't have big data, but did you have like a similar scouting network across across the different islands? How were the world beaters picked back then? Do you know what? And that's that's a very good question. And not and one to be honest, I don't even think I can answer in total confidence. But do you, one of the biggest differences, I think, in terms of selection is because the talent pool was so much higher and more importantly in shell cricket so West Indies domestic cricket the the level of competition 
between a Barbados versus a Jamaica or a Guyana versus a Trinidad in actual domestic cricket was so high that you could see with the naked eye who are your good players, <laughs> if, if that makes any sense, because the, the world-beating test players were out at the domestic level in terms of run scored or wickets taken actually would have meant something. And the biggest detriment to our cricket in the last decade is that our top level players, whether you want to call them franchise players or whatever, weren't playing domestic cricket. I remember a conversation we had on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast about, uh, let's say, four months ago with Nikita Miller. Now, Nikita Miller, Jamaican spinner, most wickets in um, regional cricket back home. He made the point to us that how can players improve if the regular test players don't play domestic cricket or the regular white ball players don't play domestic cricket because ultimately then all you're doing is you're pitching yourself against not to call anybody back home mediocre but you're pitching yourself against average players and then when you get to the test level you're completely out of your depth or you get to the sorry international level you're completely out of your depth so when I look back at the 80s I think the number one difference you have to look at is everybody was playing domestic cricket so it meant something to do well in domestic cricket does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Is 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 that also because of the fact that we just have such a packed cricketing calendar? Or or can a window be arranged? I think in the recent Super 50 series, I saw a lot of, mm. of, of national players. Uh, perhaps that's also because I believe the Bangladesh tour was on at the same point. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so that, that, and that's a good example to use, Jay. The most recent Super 50 is a perfect example of me talking about how the biggest change in our cricket under Skerritt has been players buying into what's going on off the field. Because let's just take Trinidad, for example. Now, granted, the Bangladesh tour was going on, but Super 50 came um, whilst the Test Series was going on, right? So for Trinidad, Pollard played, Puran played. Ravi Rampal decided to come back. He played. Evan Lewis played. Lendl Simmons played. Okay. They're all international players, all proven international players as well. It is rare that we had a domestic tournament where all of the players, literally everybody who could play, played in that tournament. For Guyana, Shimron Hetmeyer showed up. Barbados pretty much had everybody who wasn't in the test side. So Jason Holder was there, for, for example. Um, who else am I thinking for Barbados uh, off the top of my head? Shea Holt. Uh, Shea Holt was there, for example, etc. So every team had all of their international players and you cannot improve if everyone doesn't return home to play in those tournaments. So when Sri Lanka squad was then picked for the ODI's T20s and test team, you actually had... Lendl Simmons, I think, got picked for the T20s off the back of what went on in Super 50. But that And Jason Mohamed got picked for the ODIs off the back of Super 50. But that made sense because Jason Mohamed had pretty much top scored in the Super 50. So, And given the field of batsmen who were there, you have to then say, well, he top scored in a tournament that had Darren Bravo, that had Kieran Pollard, that had Nicholas Buran, that, that had Shimron Hetmeyer. Of course, he's then got against the ODI squad. It means something then. I definitely hear what you're saying, and it's it's so important to have your best players available, and it just bridges that gap between domestic cricket and international cricket. But, you know, like I said, if it wasn't for players sitting out of the Bangladesh tour because of concerns of, of bio-bubble fatigue and health 
concerns and mental health concerns as well. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have had a competitive Super 50 tournaments. But going forward, when things do get fixed, how do you ensure that same level of, of competition? That's a million dollar question. But now here's the problem. IPL will always be in the IPL window. And IPL essentially has almost, how do I want to say it? IPL dominates all cricket now. So how do you convince, for example, Nicholas Puram yet to play Red Bull cricket for West Indies and probably one of the top five young talents in the world, right? Everyone's excited by Nicholas Puram. Shimron Hetmeyer for all of his frustrations that he brings to, to cricket fans in the region, super talented player, but he's in IPL. How will we get Shimon Hetmeyer and Nicholas Puran to get into our Red Bull team and fulfill their talent at test level if when we have our Red Bull season domestically, they're always in the IPL? And I don't know how, how do we escape that window? Not, we can't, and we can't turn around to a Puran and to a Hetmeyer and say, forego your IPL contract because playing a domestic, tour, a, a domestic season of Red Bull cricket is, is more important to West Indies cricket. They're not going to do it. And there's no other window where our domestic Red Bull season cricket fits. So how do you, we, have a, we have a dilemma. We, we have a dilemma there. And we could, as much as I'm saying there's a harmonious... Um, we're in a harmonious moment of West Indies cricket, we could be faced with a situation where Nicholas Puran never plays Red Bull cricket for West Indies because technically he'll never play our domestic season. So technically he never would have proven that he can play Red Bull cricket. So I, I don't I don't know the way around. I've got no answers. No, that's interesting. Um, I was just brainstorming answers right now. And, you know, what, in, what India did in the Border Gravisker trophy, a big reason for their success because of all those A tours that they went on. And I, I think, I think uh, Puran, Fabian Allen, they did play at least one, if not two red ball games against New Zealand A. So yep. is it, is it possible to have some sort of parallel A tour and, and just do, do a lot more of that? As, as much as I said, I don't have the answers. That is the only answer. So, but the the issue, the issue with that. Now, for me personally, I would be fast tracking Nicholas Puran into our test setup. Now, I've already. I I don't need to see him play X number of red ball games to know that he's got ability. However, for purists back home and for people who say we have to follow our selection process properly, if he doesn't play red ball cricket in our domestic setup, how can justify fast tracking him through we either need to play concurrent able series or set up able tours and send him on them when he wouldn't be playing an ipl or a cpl and then we'd have to convince him don't go to big bash don't go to um bangladesh premier league or don't go to psl commit to this particular window where we want to see you go prove yourself and provided you do that's your window into to the red bull team that might cause some ructions back home because that would be people would feel like special circumstances were being set up for Puran, for example, if it ever happened. And they would say, well, why not for other players then? So I'm just saying, I like I say, I'm a Puran fan. I'd, I'd get him in some way, somehow. But I'm just wary that you're creating uh, almost like an unbalanced playing field there in terms of here's the selection criteria for this person, but everyone else go play our domestic tournament. So we just have to be mindful of that. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point you raise. I would say with, with someone like Puran, I almost think of him as 
I think the best comparison I can think of is someone like Joss Butler. He doesn't always play mm. a lot of county championship cricket, but he's he's just picked on that ability to be someone who's who's really good with the tail, someone who can score runs when the ball's a little bit older. And mm-hmm. with with Puran, it's it's kind of similar, but I feel like it's also different because I I. I personally feel like Nicholas Puran could be a top order option, maybe a number four or even a, you know, number five or even a number four. Yeah, that definitely. The sky's the limit for him. Right now, given how the test team is performing, there's no haste to try and get him in. But like I say, where you're a small nation or in the, in the case of West Indies, a conglomerate of islands, I think you just have to sit with players and try and establish a pathway through. And Puran is talented enough where I think you have to make an exception and you try and sit with him and say, this is what we'd like you to do. The mere fact that he agreed to go to New Zealand and play those two Red Bull games for West Indies A versus New Zealand A tells me that he's willing to work with Cricket West Indies on this. So it's just about, again, sitting down, again, looking at 2021. Um, So for example, okay, here's a perfect example. Say we don't have our domestic season and South Africa tour. Say all the tours go ahead. South Africa, um, Australia, Pakistan. Uh, Australia's just limited over. So let's say South Africa and Pakistan. Whilst those test tours are going on, much like they did with Sri Lanka, there should be South Africa versus a West Indies A. Puran must play in that. Pakistan versus West Indies A. Puran must play in that. Or similarly, um, you get together like a camp of the best 30 Red Bull players in the region and they're playing against each other as preparation for the series against South Africa and Pakistan, etc. So you just have to be creative. We're just, we're just going to take a sharp turn here because we've talked a lot about T20 cricket. We've talked a lot about white ball cricket. What I want to do is just bring you back to, to what happened in Bangladesh. Firstly, with the one-day series, I don't want to say the disappointment because a lot of players were missing. And in a sense, I guess all of that was forgiven with the 2-0 Test Series victory and what the likes of Nkrumah Bonner and and Kyle Mayers were able to achieve. And of course, the spinners as well, Warwick and Rakeem Cornwall, of course. I can't believe I almost forgot that name. But, you know, just, just talk us through your take on the tour starting with the white ball leg of the tour and and going on to, to the test leg yeah so i mean the old guys went to the old guys went to form um i say by form by form i mean selection once the pullouts had happened everyone was always worried about what would happen in the LDIs. And I think I'd set my stall out at the very beginning where I said all I wanted to see was an improvement in each game. And in fairness, they did. It, was, it wasn't it was like huge improvement, but every game there was incremental improvement um, from, from the first to the second to the third. And I think when you consider how many players were in that side who normally wouldn't be on the LDI radar... It wasn't a surprise. It was a sh- shambles. Might be strong, but I want to say shambles anyway. And, and it, like I say, that was like a West Indies C team for me. It wasn't even the B team. The test was a surprise. However, no, in fact, no. I was about to give a however. There is no however because 
the reality of the situation is in 2018, the side that lost 2-0 inside three days in both test matches to Bangladesh was stronger on paper than the side that went at the start of 2021. So there's no point in me trying to pretend and say, well, you know, we thought it might be close. Anybody in, in the Caribbean or who's a keen follower of West Indies cricket who said, yeah, I thought it might be close, they're lying. They're absolutely lying because there was no evidence to suggest, even though we had a stronger squad, and there were eight players within that squad who had test match experience. It wasn't test match experience in Bangladesh. The, the, the series win deserved every bit of su- every bit of the superlatives and the hyperbole that came afterwards because it was unprecedented. And I, I think it was churlish of some people to try and say, but it was only Bangladesh as if, as if Bangladesh haven't been anybody at home. The only kind of exclamation mark that could kind of be put to it or asterisk is that in the first test they lost Shakib, he got injured halfway through the test or maybe after two days or whatever it might be and also Bangladesh will return into cricket after over a year without any cricket but even that said their team was still stronger than the West Indies and they should have won so um it, it, it was every bit as good a performance as all of uh, as all of the press made it out to be, and obviously with Carl Mayer's double century on debut, that was that was unparalleled and unheard of as well. So there were so many things that happened in that in that Test series alone, which meant that everybody deserved credit, and that's why all the changes that well say changes. That's why everyone kept their spot, deservedly so. There was no way you could drop an a, an Incrumer Bonner or a Carl Mayer's. They, they they put their hands up when everyone else didn't go. They made the run, so now they deserve to stay in the team. And that's why I was I was I was the ones who wasn't surprised when Holder was dropped as captain because I'd been calling for that to happen for ages, and it just so happened that Bangladesh created the scenario to allow it to happen. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask you next, with with Brathwaite coming in as skipper. You know, like you say, you prefer that move. You prefer him as skipper to someone like Holder. But you you look at Craig Brathwaite's performances, I hate to say it, but since since 2017 against England, mm-hmm. and he just ha- he, 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 hangs, he hangs in there for a really long time, but he's just not quite scoring the runs. I, I, I feel it's safe to assume that his average in that period in the last three and a half years or so, it's, it's definitely been, been south of, of 30. So how do you feel about someone like him being given the, the captain's armband? So you're right. first and foremost, you're right. So Craig's average up until the Sri Lanka series where he just scored his ninth Test Match century, his average in the last two to three years was like 22. So not even sub 30, sub 25. If we had a plethora of openers knocking on the door, Craig would have got dropped. I'm certain of it. So much so that I was saying he should get dropped. He went into the England tour in 2020 under pressure for his spot. He hit two fifties in the six innings and that just about kept him ticking over. I think he's, he averaged what 29 in the series still subpar, but because John Campbell averaged worse than that, you weren't, you're not going to drop Craig Brathwaite before you drop John Campbell simply because Brathwaite's got actual test match centuries. Then they went to New Zealand. He was poor again. John Campbell averaged slightly more than Craig Brathwaite, but they were both poor. So going into Bangladesh before all of the players pulled out, I'm not going to lie to you. I would have said that before the pullouts, 
Craig was lucky to even still be in the squad. And I'd, I wrote an article about it where I said, actually, one of Craig Brathwaite and John Campbell, if not both, should be dropped from test match opening. But then when all the pullouts happened and Craig agreed to tour and he got the captaincy by base by virtue of the fact that one, he captains Barbados and two, he was the most senior batsman on the tour. So it's going to have to be Craig Brathwaite. And then when what happened happened in Bangladesh, plus he got a 70 and a 40 across the two test matches. <sighs> you almost had to forget that his form had been declining because the, the magnitude of the test series win, which by the way, was in part due to his captaincy meant that he can't be dropped. So then again, you're looking at, well, if you're going to drop one of the openers, it's going to have to be John Campbell. So, and then obviously with the Sri Lanka series, we've just had now he's, he's finally got his ninth test match century. So now basically Craig Braffitt's never going to get dropped ever again in his life. He's now, until he retires, he's now opening for the West Indies. And I'm like, it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm actually not joking. <laughs> because, because we don't have the players, even now with John Campbell having failed again in a test match series against Sri Lanka, even now we're looking around the region going, so who's going to open instead of him? Because because of COVID, we don't have any domestic cricket to, to base it on. So whoever we throw in is going to come off the back of no cricket anyway. So do, do, do you get what I mean? So you're totally right to say there should be questions about Craig and his, out, his, his output over the last three years. But if I've got uh, an opener who's played 60-odd test matches and just recorded his ninth test match century versus an opener who's only got two fifties despite playing what now must be 17 test matches. I'm going to drop the other guy. And, and now, and now Craig's captain, he can't get dropped anyway. <laughs> so so it, it, you're, you're, it, you're right. It was a, it was a contentious decision, but in fairness to Roger Harper, the chairman of selectors, when they gave it to him, Roger Harper said, we believe this will galvanize Craig's batting. And if you look at what happened in the Sri Lanka series, well, it worked. So I guess we've got to, we've got to leave him be. Could you make an argument that all the player pullouts in Bangladesh, at least in terms of your red ball fortunes, it, it was a blessing in disguise. It seems like you yeah. traded up, you traded up from Roston Chase to Cornwall, similar, probably a better batting output and, and a frontline spinner. And you look at the likes of, of Mayers and Bonner. Now you don't have to keep going back to Shea Hope, in, in, for lack of a better word, in the hope that he recreates what he did in 2017 against England. So is, would you say it was, it was just this amazing, crazy blessing in disguise? Ultimately, ultimately, that, that's it. That's, that's the narrative. And rightly or wrongly, we had allowed the Test Match team in my mind, to stagnate. By stagnate, I mean players were being trusted for too long in, in the West Indies setup. So Hope was an example. Ruston Chase was an example. Craig was an example. But circumstances have favoured Craig, which now means he's kept his position. But certain players were underperforming in that top six and just keeping their place from series to series. And we weren't giving. So... Here's an example. Uh, Nkrumah Bonner toured England. People forget this. He was actually in the 15-man squad. He was in the 15-man squad to New Zealand as well. Didn't get a test match. He didn't get a test match, even though there were players on that tour struggling inside the top six. He only got this test. He only finally got a test match debut in Bangladesh because players pulled out. 
if the full squad had gone to Bangladesh, Nkrumah Bond wouldn't have played in Bangladesh either. So you're completely right, Jay, to say it's a blessing in disguise because Bond has got his chance through sheer luck, so to speak, in Bangladesh. But more importantly than that, and this is why I give him and Carl Mayer so much credit, once they got their chance, they fully cashed in to make it impossible for the established test match players to ever get a look in again until they drop form. And that's, to be honest, that's the way it should be for every single cricket team from India all the way to your local team in the park. Players shouldn't just keep their spot because they did something three years ago. Either you continually improve and keep people out through sheer weight of runs and performance, or you have to know that actually you can lose your spot at any moment in time. That's how you get a successful winning climate. Once people become comfortable, that's what I think. That's why I said to you, Ruston Chase will come back because he got too comfortable thinking that he was never going to get dropped. That's my personal opinion, by the way. But now he knows, oh, sugar. Carl Mayers, Rakeem Cornwall and Nkrumah Bond have just come in from nowhere. One's hit a double century. One was man of the series in Bangladesh. Um, one took, took 14 wickets in Bangladesh and now scored 60, average of 67 against Sri Lanka. I've got to up my game. And that's the way any sports team should be. Without a doubt, yeah. And let's go back to white ball cricket. One thing we haven't talked about yet is the ODI Super League. So obviously losing those three games against Bangladesh, coming back really strongly, three really, really important clean sweep against Mm. Sri Lanka. But what do you make of West Indies fortunes in the run-up to World Cup qualification and the ODI Super League. I am far more confident in this ODI setup than I was between 2015 and 2019. That's no disrespect to Jason Holder, but we never won a series between 2015 to 2019. So when we got to the World Cup after going through the qualifiers uh, in Zimbabwe, which we shouldn't even have made that World Cup because Scotland got cheated out of that. People think I'm lying when I say this. I was praying that we didn't make the World Cup in 2019 because. I want. I believed at the time that West Indies needed something seismic like that to happen to make them realise where they were. And by scraping through with the with that, what was it that dodgy LBW decision or whatever yeah. it was, or and and then the rain by scraping through it allowed us to paper over the cracks. And then we went to the World Cup and we were we were predictably awful. <laughs> so, um, so, anyways, that was 2019. Now, obviously, Pollard's in charge now. Now. I know people have lots of different opinions about Pollard, but the one thing that you can never not agree on with Pollard is he is an out-and-out winner, and he demands a certain level of performance. Does that mean West Indies are going to go to the World Cup in 2023 and win it? Probably not. Does that mean that we'll get through this OGI Super League thing, not have to qualify for the World Cup, and actually be competitive? I would expect so. Just because... I can see, if we take Sri Lanka, I can see what they're working towards. I see a plan in place. So against Sri Lanka, I saw Evan Lewis and Shea Hope at the top. That makes sense as an opening pair. Shea Hope, one of the best ODI players in the world. Forget his strike rate, just one of the best ODI players in the world. Evan Lewis showing levels of maturity. Darren Bravo brought back into the fold. Puran at four. Pollard at five. Holder now having a, an established role, floating at six or seven. Fabian Allen there as well. Bear in mind, Shimron Hetmeyer's got to come back into that side at some point in time. So I, so I see, I see something. I see a clear, 
I see a clear team that is being created with established roles for every player in that side. The only question mark I've got and what I'm really looking at over the, all these Super League games coming up, I'm not as convinced with our bowling. We, we've got to get our bowling right. And I think I think the setup knows this. Pollard and Phil Simmons, they know this. We're on the lookout for, for bowlers, not necessarily spin bowlers, not too unhappy with Akil Hussain and Fabian Allen, but the quicks. I'm slightly concerned about the... the the level of quicks that we've got available to us. So that that is the area of concern. But batting-wise, I, I, I can see a plan in place with, with our team. It makes a lot of sense. I, I guess we kind of saw that at the World Cup as well, the way you started against Pakistan. Mm. Pretty much just bounced them out. But yeah. I think the best example is, is probably against a team like Bangladesh. But I think it was around 320 that you posted. And they, and they chased change, it down. They changed yeah. it in like 40 overs or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. Don't worry. It's etched in my brain. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> but in any case, I'm just going to take a quick look at the notes here for some of West Indies opponents in the Super League. You've mm. got Australia at home. Yeah, in July, I think. Yeah, in June. And you've got Ireland at home. So that's going to be an important potential 30-point mm. series. But you start looking at some of your away fixtures, and that's where it gets slightly tough. There was obviously 3-0 in Bangladesh. How could we forget away to India? There's a big chance of either a clean sweep or or 2-1. Mm. So, you know, how, how important, when we come back to it at the end, you know, at the end of 2022, and we look at who's gotten through. How, how how crucial will those thirty points against Bangladesh be? I won't lie to you. Maybe they will come back to haunt us. But I think at the moment I'm not too bothered about it. Only because we immediately cancelled them out by getting the thirty against Sri Lanka. So I'd like to think that Sri Lanka will be looking back, going how important we're losing every single game to the West Indies be because teams like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, with no disrespect to them, should be looking at us and being like, that's where we're going to get our points. In the same way that we're looking at them and thinking that's where we're going to get our points. And again, going to India, the last time we went to India, actually, we lost 2-1 in the ODIs. So again, I'm not bothered if we lose to India. If we pick up one win, that's good. That's Because again, how many teams are going to go to India? and lose all three games that they play against them. So um, I think as long as the team approaches every series with the idea of get some points in the bag, you should be able to mutter and stutter your way through into the top eight. Even if it's in eighth place, <laughs> you should be able to somehow find your way through because the chances of everybody else picking up points here and there, I would say are slim. That's interesting because you compare the 50 over format to the 20 over format and a lack of fast bowlers clearly didn't hurt you in 2016. Mm. So I guess the dynamics are very different, especially with you know all the boundary hitters that you've got in your top order and your middle order and your lower order, of course. No one's going to forget the name, Carlos yeah. Brathwaite. But I guess that leads us to an interesting segue. <laughs> T20 World Cup coming up. So what do you, what do you make of, of West Indies' chances of going back-to-back? Um, I think we're going to win it, personally. I'm not... 
I'm not just saying that. I genuinely think we're going to win it again. The only question mark, what I'm scared by the fact that Australia might be the venue. If it's in Australia, I might have to revise my point. The reason I think we'll win it is because it's scheduled to be in India. And I think in India, I would trust our entire team and their six hitting ability to get us out of any situation and chase any total within reason. Um, the reality of the situation is, despite everybody having the West Indian template to copy since 2012, no one can do it as well as the West Indies still in 2021. And by template, I mean, if you had to pick a team internationally where what's required is a whole ton of sixes to win a match, you're probably not betting against West Indies. You, you bet on the West Indies first. Because the whole setup of the cricket and every single player, if I call the first eight names in the likely in the likely um twenty twenty lineup, everybody can hit a six at will. So based on that, I'm backing us still. The only question mark I've got is will the bowling be strong enough to restrict other good teams? And that part I can't answer yet because a lot of it depends on variables that we don't know about yet. The number one variable is, will Sunil Narayan go to the World Cup? Sunil's not the player he was, but he is still Sunil Narayan. And for whatever reason, players internationally still respect Sunil Narayan. So a West Indies with four overs from Sunil Narayan, where people are basically going to play him out for like 22 runs, is still exceptionally valuable in the context of a World Cup because we've got no one else who can replace him and do that. So the wickets doesn't matter to me. It's I, I don't mind people playing him out for 22 because that's four overs that they've lost um, by playing him out for 22 runs. So Sunil is a big issue um, and whether he's going to be there. And then also, who are we taking as our strike bowler? It can't be Fidel Edwards. I know obviously he got a recall for the Sri Lanka series, but it can't be Fidel Edwards. So again, it's about Albert McCoy impressed against Sri Lanka. Will he go? Will Sheldon Cottrell be going? So there's some issues with the bowling. For some reason, Alzari Joseph's not involved in the 2020s. I don't know why. So we still got some issues with the fast bowling. But batting wise, I, I honestly do not believe any team matches us for what we can offer. Two part question here. Firstly, it's it's not even a two part question. It's just two different questions. But I I want to I want to get both out there because I I don't want to miss out on anything. So the first question is: Are the West Indies? a stronger batting lineup today at full strength than they were in 2016? And the second question is, okay, you think the West Indies are favorites? If the World Cup is in India, who's the next, who's the biggest threat for the West Indies? Okay, so first question, are we better now than in 2016? Yes, because in 2016, Pollard wasn't there. I'm saying yes for two reasons. One, in fact, three reasons. Three. In fact, four. (laughs) Four reasons. Four. There's certain players that are there now that weren't in 2016 who I think are better players. Okay. Pollard didn't play in the 2016 World Cup. Neither did the Ryan, actually. And uh, Pollard right now is going through, like, he's at peak 2020 form. He was man of the series in CPL. He was amazing in the last IPL. If Pollard maintains that form through 2021, like, like, 
I I can't even put into words. If Pollard goes to the World Cup in the form he's currently in, you would back Pollard to marshal a chase of anything. That's bef- and that and when I say that, when I say you'd back him, that's because he'd have someone like Andre Russell coming in after him, or or um or a Fabian Allen, who can also hit sixes at will. So Pollard's a big issue, uh, is one of the reasons. Two, we've got the best young player in the world, which is Nicholas Puran. He wasn't there in 2016, and Nicholas Puran's like Nicholas Puran murders spin bowling. So I think we've got to throw a Nicholas Puran in there. Three, if his mind is right. We have Shimron Hetmeyer there as well. A lot depends on where Shimron's at, but assuming he goes there, he's the third reason. Like, like, come on, <laughs> just come on. Is all, is all I'm saying. Um, I don't know a team that would want to face all of those players one after the other, knowing that all of them can basically go at 150 plus, almost at will. It'd have to be an almighty collapse for one of them to not come off basically. Um, so that's the, that's number one reason. Plus, we're still on the Ryan coming back if he comes back. Then anyways, the team that can beat us, England. A lot of people are going to say India, but I actually think England, and until I see a bit more of New Zealand outside of New Zealand, I, I, I don't want to talk them up too much. Um, in a 2020 format, I, I hasten to add, I'm not about 50 overs or or, or test match cricket. So I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to jump on the New Zealand hype here. Um, whereas England, I think, do, if they get their lineup, it's got to be England and India after, after, um, after West Indies for me. Our Indian viewers will be more than happy to hear that. <laughs> no, but I, I, I okay, certainly... Do you know, I'm going to say this. <laughs> I'm just going to say, whoever knocks West Indies out, wins the world cup that's i think that's that's the other way to look at it so whoever beats us in the semis you can guarantee that's the team that's going to go on to win and obviously whoever beats us in the final has won the world cup so i think a good way of looking at it is whoever is responsible for knocking west indies out is probably going to be the winners of the competition that's a fair assumption and i think it says something that someone like a carlos brathwaite is nowhere near t20 contention and you know he he won you that final, and now there's just no way you could see him in 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 the eleven. Mash, you know what? Thank you so much. Been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Let's 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 keep the let's keep the dialogue. Let's keep the banter going. Let let's uh, yeah. certainly keep in touch. It's been a pleasure to have you on. No worries, man. A- absolute absolute pleasure. And for uh, anybody who's locking into this, please get behind this. It's so, it's so important what Jay's doing. And thanks for having me on, man. Really, really appreciate it and humbled, uh, humbled to be able to talk to you about all things West Indies. Thank you for listening. You can follow MASH on Twitter at MASH St. Paddy. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at All Over Crick. You know, without the K-E-T. All Over Cricket is a multimedia publication featuring articles, podcasts, and videos from contributors spread across the world. We provide fans with original and engaging content that is reflective of the truly global and gender-inclusive sport that we believe cricket should be. If you like this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about All Over Cricket.